So let me, let me say this. This is um, 8, 9, 10. So this is the eighth session. Um, I'll be gone. So next week, we're not, next week we have the Reformation Fair. The week after that, I am gone. And uh, Mark Jacobson is covering for me on that, on that Sunday evening. And then I'm back for the last, the last session. And the last session, we'll talk about qualifications of a missionary and then even how you can get involved uh, even in our mission program here at the church. So let me say this already from a time. It's been, it's amazing how quickly this time has gone for me. Maybe not for you, it's gone quickly for me, but uh, I've enjoyed going through this. And I really want to say this from a, uh, from a per- person perspective. My, my desire in doing this is helping me understand how I want to direct and lead and invest in missions. I understand that there's, 20 different ways of, of approaching certain issues and certain questions. You can't erase all gray areas, but I wanted to tackle some of the major issues that we deal with in missions. I want to tackle the ambiguities we see with missions. I want to attack the contradictions we see in missions. And I want to, I, I want to do that in a way that makes sense for me and how to, how to handle it. And then, of course, consequently, how we're going to lead it as a church and how to respond to missions uh, as a church and invest in missions. So, it, it doesn't mean that you know this is a a, a, a do all manual for everyone. It's more on a on a personal basis. How can I process these questions? I mentioned right from day one, just having lived missions, having breathed missions, constantly reading about missions. I ordered three new books this past week, so there's always new books on missions, and enjoying reading about that. And the, the frustration of that I see in the writings about the role of the church. Uh, the contrast between the reality of what they see on the field versus what they know the church should be doing and, and all these pieces. And so we try to attack these in a way that's systematic and consistent for me to understand and kind of build on that. So this is really a one on a personal level, something that I want to be able to help process in my own life and then how I can apply it to, to ministry here and really have a desire to to grow the missions program here, continue. Timberlake's always been involved in missions, but to do so in a healthy and in a constructive way. So we talked about, in the past couple of weeks, talking about the Great Commission. Uh, we talked about the first the f- principle that is the guiding principle with the Great Commission is that as you go, as you baptize, as you teach, uh, uh, your objective is to make disciples. Everything else is purely, even grammatically, adverbial support to the idea of making disciples, which means from the moment you go, you're going with the mindset of making disciples. And what that means, the missions means you're establishing people that can think for themselves, not internally, but think through the word, search the word, grow and Paul systematically trained, made disciples, established elders, and moved on to somewhere else. It's very different. Missionary work is different than pastoral work. Missionary work is, is painful in that you invest and invest and, and you see them go off. Uh, we have good friends who were missionaries to the American military in Germany. I think that's probably the worst because every three years the people are rotating off. And they know, well, we've got three years to pour into them, then they leave. It's a very thankless job because you can't build leaders that sit there for the rest of your life. You're training them to take your place. And it's, it's difficult, and we, we experienced that, and we didn't expect to see the pains of, of, of 
of seeing that kind of transition. So pastoral work, missionary work are, are different things. You're going there thinking, okay, I'm not going here to, to help establish works that can support themselves, grow, and thrive. And I'm just, I'm just, say, I'm just part of that process. And how, how do you... Uh, it's a good French word. We have a French friend here, so she could... Josiane, c'est mon ami qui est avec moi. Donc, elle nous visite pendant 10 jours de, de la France. So she's here visiting with us for 10 days from our previous ministry in France. She's really here just Jane's best friend, so... Uh, <laughs> but she's a great cook, so I get some good meals out of this, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Jane was a great cook as well. Did I? Did I? That, yeah, all right. All right. All right. It is what it is. All right. Some, I'm not going to dig that hole any deeper, right? But what we see is we shape. So we talked about as you go, who sends, who is sent, are, are critical questions we have to answer. If you don't answer those questions, you don't know how to answer those questions, then you, 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 you don't know which way mission is going to be steered. That is, is a critical. Then as you baptize, we looked at that last time, focus on establishing local churches as integral part of, 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 um, of teaching. You're teaching them in with the expectation of growing them towards your gathering as believers and local assemblies towards the purpose of establishing churches. But you establish churches. Paul established them together, gathered them together, because that was the environment in which you were going to learn. One thing we looked at last time, just to bring us up to speed here, and some of you maybe were here, page 44, one of the, the things he describes here is that church planning is... Is the, is the gospel model, meaning that the gospel is not preached and taught and grown and learned independently of a gathered body of believers. It's if when we present that, I said we talk about what it means to have a truncated gospel, which means it's cut short. It's really within the body that they experience this and, and grow, and so the bodies were formed for the purpose of teaching. Not teaching for the purpose of establishing churches, but establishing congregations for the purpose of being able to teach them and maturing them towards, towards disciple-making. We talked about church planning, the uh, critical aspect of that, and why that was significant. And then specifically in, in this area of teaching, we talked about how salvation, and this is where everything is, is, is steered towards making disciples. As you go, gospel is proclaimed, and you're baptizing, you're gathering them in, in, in uh, gathering believers, the ultimate objective is not just bringing them to salvation, is bringing them to dis- being disciples of Christ. If your ultimate goal is salvation, you're going to, and I, I remember going on a mission trip to, to Memphis, and we did this outdoor preaching, and we showed the, you know that gore movie where this guy's on a little scooter, and he has an accident, and his head goes rolling down the road, and it's, it's supposed to be a scary, you know, and then he finds himself in hell, and we scared everybody and everybody raised their hand is out street you know street preaching and, and so forth and tim white and i were talking to the pastor in charge like we're kind of concerned about this he says hey our job is to get them saved then the church takes care of the rest well when you have that mindset you bring in a whole bunch of people that are not understanding of the gospel and so uh the importance of understanding the ultimate goal and that's why paul was so effective in church planning was also because he when he brought people to salvation it wasn't a truncated gospel it was a gospel that understood the cost of discipleship, that understood the cost of following Christ. And then with that, uh, the ability to, to uh, expect, I think I mentioned it here today in, in the uh, discipleship aspect, is expecting obedience. And so in other words, it, it came with obedience. It wasn't this two-tier salvation experience. Here's a wonderful 
salvation experience, and then later on we're going to talk about what it means to really become a Christian. Those things were one, and so he established that foundation that he needed to, to grow and establish uh, the work. So, page 47 is where we're going to pick up today about making disciples. And then look at look what does it look like in the life of a of a church as we're growing towards towards that end and how how did Paul walk through that and get us to to that point? So making disciples is that is the is the command of the Great Commission is to make disciples. A disciple is someone who walks with the Lord, depends on His truth, who knows the Lord, who is grounded in truth, and of course he's grounded and grows in the knowledge of truth. So. Page 47F, Making Disciples. A disciple is one who has placed his faith in Christ, publicly claims and follows Christ, and now is a lifelong pupil of, uh, of Christ. The point that I'm making here in this first part is that making disciples is constantly the objective in view that shapes everything else we do. What you find in missions, and it's probably true in other areas of ministry, what you find in missions is that you come after 10, 20, 30 years of ministry and you're unable to know how to that bring that, that ministry to maturity. And the big problem is because of the genesis of the work, making disciples wasn't the objective. It wasn't thought through as an objective. So you establish works that actually over here, you had a very hard time becoming independent. Many, many ministries work this, this way. They led by a single missionary who works in the same place for 20 years, for 30 years. Then he comes at an age where thinking, okay, now I've really got to turn this thing over to somebody, so I've got to find somebody like me who knows things like I do, who can be financially supported. So they look for that one guy that can replace him. And honestly, that rarely works. First of all, because the, the ability to financially support a missionary is totally different than financially supporting a, a pastor on the field for financial reasons, for the strength of the, the work, just different reasons. It just doesn't make that really a reality. And then you find a frustrated missionary who can't find that one man who's going to replace him. So what does he do? He finds another missionary, younger than him, coming on the field, that comes takes his work and takes it for another loop, another round, another lap. And then after 20 years, he's going to be doing the same thing. Wow. We just don't have qualified men to take over the work. Where is that man? And we need more missionaries to come take over these works. And they go around for another lap. And you find himself at 20, 30, 40 years constantly in missions are right by that frustration what's happening why are we not bringing these works why did paul not get caught up in that cycle and we talked a little bit about that last time some of the books that are written about that how did he invest in people and turn ministries over to to elders and again you could take the biblical example and you could you could follow the biblical example there's i think schnabel says this well it says every time we have a biblical example model we should act ourselves why if we're doing things differently why it's not enough to say, well, context is different, culture is different, or, or society is different. It's not enough to say that today's age is different. Why are, we, why are we so far apart from the biblical model? And there could be, obviously, reasons for that. Some things are historical, cultural, and so forth. But we should ask ourselves, here's, here's Paul's model, you know, how far apart we are from that, and why was his model, what was he successful at doing? So he went from page 48, from disciples to establishing elders. I think you'll, you'll know this, you'll, you'll see this. Paul is, one of the things he does systematically, the consistent pattern we see with Paul as he leaves his work is what? He left elders. Left elders and from there went somewhere else and left men in charge in, in, in one place to continue the ministry. I put down a few 
points of reference here when it comes to, uh, to Paul. I put down beyond Timothy, there are approximately 100 names connected to Paul in Acts and the Pauline letters. Now, I usually reference everything, but I took out that reference, so I'm not sure where I got that reference from. So I do reference everything. I try to pull out the references here and just kept them to direct quotes. But going through Paul's sphere of influence, I put down one of those 38 are co-workers of the apostle and eight of those are women. From there, Timothy spreads the gospel through Asia. Titus does work in, oh, I should ask somebody else to pronounce his name, Elicuricum, I should pronounce it in French and make it easier for me. And then you, and Crete, and so forth. And so Paul clearly believed in the Second Timothy 2.2 model of investing in leaders that will invest in other leaders. I remember talking to a, a missionary once, and he was, he was actually, he was saying this in a very humble way. He says, you know, I've been here for a long time. He says, I used to have a, I used to look negatively on one of my coworkers because every time I saw him, he had always the same four men with him. And I thought, well, you know, I've always had this new energy. I have new people. We're evangelized, knocking on doors, and we had a lot of life. And he always had a small little group. He said, but I realized, you know, 20 years later, he's got a work established with these men, and I'm still running around knocking on doors and getting people to come in, and they're still coming and going at the same pace they always have. He said, somehow I didn't. I, I, he invested in a handful of men. It's amazing that he had the humility to recognize that after years of ministry. Paul invested uh, in, in men who then in turn, of course, he was able to leave behind as elders. D.A. Carson labels the DNA of multiplication is Paul investing in people, not so they, they would follow him, but so that they would follow Christ. Paul invested in men so that they would shepherd the flock and do the work of the ministry. Invested in people so that they would follow Christ and not follow him. It's, it's difficult. We mentioned last time the example of parenting because it's so apropos to, to mention parenting because we have the same mission of, of training our children so they would follow Christ, and yet we get lost in that, and oftentimes they get caught up in and the things that bother us are the things that have to do with our own personal convictions and preferences and not really following Christ. And in ministry, we can build that way as well. But Paul invested in people so they would follow uh, Christ and not him. I put down the turning point in Paul's work, as in any church plant, is when elders are established. This is the one consistent pattern as described in Acts 14.23. He said they appointed elders for them in every church. Paul instructs Titus to do the same in Titus 1.5. I left you in Crete so that you might what, put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town I directed you. That's, there's one consistent pattern you see of Paul as he appointed elders. Now, how, how did he do this? How, our idea of appointing an elder is perhaps different than Paul, what Paul would have. Our idea of an elder is, I was going to say that to be old, but since I'm an elder, it kind of makes me feel old. So let's not use that term. Let's use a Experience, right, Rich? That's another. Rich needs to help with that term as well. There you go. <laughs> if if your expectation, first of all, be, from the beginning with Paul going in there, one teaching the gospel, not a truncated gospel, a full understanding of what the gospel is, expect obedience that comes from a response to the gospel. And then train these men in the essentials of what they need to know and learn what. Not that he taught them everything he knew, but he gave them the tools 
to learn. He taught them what they needed to know and to lead them then as elders in these churches. It's, it's hard for us to imagine because we're thinking, well, we need 20 years to do that, 30 years to do that. And I don't really have a, a clear – it would be dangerous to put a, a, a guideline or a stipulation on that to say, well, you know, someone's been 30 years in one place. It's too long. What I would suggest, however, is that that thought process of making disciples and followers of Christ has to be in the DNA of what you're doing. If it isn't, you'll find yourself 30 years in the same place and just realize you've been doing, you've been doing everything yourself the whole time and no one is there to really uh, turn that work over as, as elders. Next paragraph says, These same churches did not stop at appointing elders. They sent them off as well as apostles or messengers of the church. And though these churches now that had elders appointed, now they sent messengers from those churches. In Acts 15, Judas... Silas were sent in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul expects the church to select messengers to go with him. In 2 Corinthians, again, messengers appointed. In other words, not only does this ministry have elders appointed to it, but the ministry comes around full circle by its own ability to send messengers and go and carry and purpose carry the gospel, but serve as missionaries in their in their own right. So, yes, there's a there's a gradual transition. Between, in a work between establishing elders. And I think the missionary needs to distinguish that and understand that. Uh, and I put down a few categories here. It's really for myself. But there is a transition that goes place in the ministry. If I'm going to go into ministry and there are no other elders, then my responsibility is, what, the, is to go and help establish elders. Once elders are established, as a missionary, I've got two choices. Either I'm one of the elders and I function there for a season under a broader eldership model, that's rare to see because usually the missionary is the trump card, right? He's the he's the um, he's that ace, you know. Basically, he's the one that we could all vote, but his vote just happens to count for as many of all the other votes, you know, kind of mindset. Uh, but the idea that somehow uh, you're either partnering with other elders now that have been legitimately established, or you go somewhere else and help establish elders somewhere else, but you can't stay in a capacity as missionary where there's other qualified elders now and stay there. As this elder, super elder, otherwise this, that body will never become autonomous. They'll, they'll never establish themselves as, as their, a body in, in their own right. So I put down failure uh, to disciple, to make disciples and transition to elders will prevent a church plant from achieving needed maturity. There's, there's three areas that are very common to missions. These are the three things you usually see when you're trying to see the objective. In, in, in at the bottom of page 48, the objective in establishing a church usually carries these three titles. They, they, you'll see them worded a little bit differently. I'm, I'm worded this way here, self-supporting, self-governing, and self-extending. So these are the, the three areas that uh, as you invest, have invested in, in a work, that they become at the level of maturity when they reach these, these areas. So I, I break down those areas briefly for us. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I left some notes on that. But the first area is significant in that it's you go from being disciples to being self-supporting. Now, I, I made a caveat here that I don't usually see written down. I put down being self-supporting, top page 49, being self-supporting is the ability of a church to sustain itself both spiritually and physically. In other words, if you want a church to arrive at maturity and your goal as missionaries is to, to bring them to be disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, you want to establish works that are uh, follow Christ, 
that have these three criteria. One, their ability to be self-supporting. And here, here is the weakness that we often create right from the beginning of the ministry. We establish the work in a way that makes it very hard for a, a church to become self-supporting. Uh, it'd be like there's a, a, a school, another, another private Christian school that's a friend of ours. We know them, and they, they depend on a wealthy endowment every year. That one endowment sustains half their budget. Well, it's very, it'd be very difficult for the church, for that school rather, 20 years, 25 years later now, to become independent. Why? Because they've got this endowment that they depend on, and that devout and pulled, then that school could, could collapse overnight. It's difficult to establish works right from the beginning when you're, you're creating and sustaining a work that is not sustainable on their end. Because you have your expectations. A lot of times the model is, the model is go build a building and, and they will come. And you, you finance things that they would never have been able to finance on their own. Now, again, money is reasonable to think we've been given wealth and we should share that wealth. I'm, I'm not against the idea that somehow we should help support projects. But if you do that at the expense of creating a ministry that ultimately they're not able to sustain, then you're, you're depriving them of the ability to, to, for this work to be their work. And you're depriving them of the ability to ultimately become self-supporting both physically and, and spiritually and taking their own matters in their own hands. So I put, I put down two things that stand out that will either hinder or delay a church plant from achieving adulthood. One, the first problem lies in the foundation of the missionary work itself, meaning uh, the missionary comes in, the missionary knows better than everybody else just because he thinks that way. I could do things better, I could do things faster, I could do things more efficiently, I've been trained, I've been, and you could kind of start taking things in charge, and by doing that, you deprive them, you know, basically he will have more biblical knowledge, ministry discernment, and people will naturally defer to them for that. It's not like you're, to, it's not like you're imposing yourself. People will, will gladly defer and let someone else uh, take that kind of uh, responsibility. You deprive them of learning, of doing. Learning but you, by doing on the, on the native side of, of, the, of the equation. You ever seen a helicopter mom? I see them a lot in school, so, I mean, they hover. They hover, all right? As soon as the kids get a bad grade, they come swooping in. You know, as soon as they got embarrassed in class, they come swooping in. As soon as they didn't make the team, here they come. Uh, well, it's because it's our, it's our nurturing. As, as a pastor, shepherd, you love your flock, and you're nurturing them, and you love them. And so it's not... To see them struggle is difficult. To see them make mistakes is difficult. And you want to, you want to intercede, but by doing that, you don't allow them to, to develop into that maturity where they could, they could take responsibility spiritually for their own growth and, and grow and learn. I said, unfortunately, missionary zeal too often translates into missionary doing everything with the hope at some point down the road to pass it on or pass on the responsibility to a mature believer. But what they don't realize is that you're undermining that their ability to become mature believers by hovering over them in the way you have. John Lucas, is a, I, he's a, a unique book in Europe because um, the book is in, is in French, not in English, so you can't go and, and look for it. So I can say what I want about it, I guess. But I find it interesting because John Lucas says this. He says when you, he's responsible doing for about 15, I think put it down, about 15 church plants in Belgium, in Belgium. So it's Western culture, same thing as, as, as a French or Western culture. He says, he writes a book on how to, how to church plant in, in Belgium. 
And I find it interesting. You might find this a little bit challenging, but just be, be open to the, to the critical thought. He says, he warns against building a church plant on high-maintenance people who are always in need. What he's trying to tell people is, listen, when you go in the foundation of a work and you want to go and establish a foundation that you could lead, establish elders, and establish that work, you need to understand a few things. One, the gospel will draw needy people. Now you think, well, of course it will because they need the gospel. But beyond that, he says it could draw people that are, for lack of a better word, dysfunctional needy people and will always be needy people. And, you're, and, you're, and basically they're going to draw you and you're going to try to work on people because they have specific needs, needs that really they're going to constantly struggle with. So I understand when you say this, well, of course, we're all needy, and uh, the gospel will naturally um, draw needy people to, to him. But understand what he's saying. He's saying when you're trying to start a work, you're trying to build a, a foundation on which you can train men and train people to be uh, elders and so forth. He said people who are listening but never learning, religious people in search of another religious experience, an inordinate amount of college students. Sorry, guys. Uh, I could have taken that out, but what we found in the ministry is that it's hard to build. Timberlake is in a great place to minister to a college ministry. But if you start a work, and I've seen this in, I've got a good friend who works in, in Baldo, good college ministry, but he's still there after 35 years because it's a college ministry. And that's his foundational work. And, and missionaries can be drawn to that because why? Why would they like you about college kids? They don't mind critical thinking. They don't mind engaging. They're, you know, they don't mind all this conversation that a traditional French person doesn't want to engage in as easily. But with that comes people coming and going in constant transition. So difficult in, in ability in, in, in growing a work. So that's just one of his, his, his warnings. But he says building a cultural church. Not indigenous to a specific location. It's very easy to get caught in a foreign nation, and honestly, you know, you're surrounded by other foreigners because foreigners attract foreigners. So you, here you are in, in the middle of a country, and you have a foreign-based church because a foreigner attracts foreigner. And as an American, you're a foreigner. You attract other foreigners. And so next you know, you don't have, an, you don't have a church that's indigenous to that work. You have a separate church that's a cultural church around... And again, you thank the Lord for anybody responsive to the gospel, all that. But and then, or building a work with a foreign flavor around personal convictions or traditions. So he's he's he, he you have to read his book with a critical mind and open mind. But what he's what he's trying to explain is this: you here's the here's what I, I, I gather from his book. You go into a church plant with what the objective is to make this an independent work that can be self-sustaining, that can support themselves spiritually and physically. And you can't do that if you go into a work and you build on people that are in high need and high demand, but they're never, you don't discern that they're not going to get anywhere because they're really just going to draw your time and you're not building a foundation. You're going to be there in 20 years in the same situation. So leave, be that – you may have some problems with that thought process, but uh, just be the, – the underlying principle is, um, is how you going into a work with the idea of – them becoming self-supporting. And then I put down the second problem lies in financial ties. Um, Alan, which is the author I mentioned last week, he's turn of the century, right? So he's eight, late 1800s, early 19, up to 1910, 1912, African missions. Alan observes that churches who receive the most help are weak, lifeless, and helpless. Now those are his words. 
But he says in his observation in ministry years in Africa, he said the churches that received the most help remain weak, lifeless, and helpless. In third world countries in particular, the missionary comes with more resources than the average new convert. And in the missionary's desire to grow the ministry rapidly or out of guilt for having so much while they have so little, resources are poured into the work. So just, just as, a, as his observation that, again, my, my point here is, is for the missionary work needs to be sensitive to the desire of ultimately making a work that can sustain itself. And it's easy as Americans that come in have all these resources available to us, not just financial resources, but academic resources, book resources. I mean, even in writing, most literature is still written in English. I think I, I saw a study once in the, in the 80% or 85% of the books in the, in the Christian, French Christian library were translated from the English. I mean, there's just that, that drive in, uh, that America produces there. So there's that, there's that influence. But important here is this. I put that in a little paragraph at the bottom of page 49. It is difficult to build and sustain missional compounds, buildings, properties with foreign money and expect to produce an indigenous work. Financially, dependency teaches people that they cannot provide for themselves and discourages them from becoming autonomous and perpetuates a subservient role. So this is, you know, Alan says that in, in his after ministry. Oh, the point being is this, uh, and simply an, an observation for us is that I have to be confident that the biblical principles are true for me as it is for them. I have to be, that has to be, money is not neutral. You can't pour money into a ministry and think it's going to be, it has a neutral effect. It does not have a neutral effect. It warps how we do everything. It warps motivations. It warps desires. It warps a lot of things into how we do things. I have to believe that the Lord is able to sustain his work in a poor culture, in a rich culture, and one with many means, one with few means, and that the principle of, a, of a, a body sustaining themselves and becoming independent has to be true for us as it is for anyone else. It can't be that it's only available to us because we have the financial resources, but it's not true for uh, this little church in India because they don't have the means that they're too poor. So they're too poor to, to be able to follow biblical principles. I, don't, I, can't, I can't think that way. How is that even possible? They have to be able to do the same thing I'm doing here on their level with their own expectations. So... It's, it's easy for us as, a, as, as, a, as an American resources to, to intervene in that, and we just have to be diligent. We have to be wise about how, how that's done. Uh, he, there is one thought. See bottom page 49? One of the authors brought this out, and I thought it was pretty interesting. Again, it's an observation. It's not a doctrine here. It's an observation. Look at what it says, bottom page 49. It's interesting to observe that Paul did not give financial help to established churches. As a matter of fact, younger church plants contributed to alleviate the suffering of the older Jerusalem church who was facing a great famine. Interesting because in our model, it's always the other way around, right? It's the mothership who pours money into the, the other works. We don't see that biblical example. So I'm just saying we need to be maybe cautious about that because in the biblical model, Paul never used financial resources to sustain a grow a new work. As a matter of fact, those new works poured money back up the system to help the suffering Jerusalem church. So I find that interesting because we often see only the other model and find that to be almost a a, a necessity. So page fifty. I'm gonna put a little bit of 
the French will say, I'm going to put a little bit of water in my wine now to dilute a little bit of what I'm saying, right? Uh, in other words, that can sound very, very black and white, but let me make sure that you, you hear this. Page 50. This is not to suggest that there's not a place and time for financial support, but it should be considered in light of whether it helps or whether it hinders a church from becoming indigenous. So we should have – I don't think we have enough of that consideration. We're so desirous of seeing things grow, and we're so excited about this, and we say, well, we've got so much, they've got so little. So that must be – obviously mean we should do this. I think we just need to make sure that we make sure that what we're doing helps rather than, uh, than hinders. And I realize some people are very critical of me saying that. I get that because they're thinking right now – well, not your thing, but they could be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say because you're wealthy and they're not. And I get that, but – I still want to kind of try to navigate these principles. Um, page 50 I put down to you, supporting a national pastor can be helpful if limited in time and does not discourage a church from supporting the needs of its own shepherd, meaning that I would not advocate to support a national pastor indefinitely. I would do a part of a, of a building plan to help that pastor do the work of the gospel and encourage that church to come alongside and in transition phase do that. If you don't do that, then you have what they called mailbox pastors back in the 80s uh, it was known for pastors in Brazil and South America, especially a term came out with mailbox pastors because they just went to the mailbox and waited for the check to come in, and that's all they did. So you want a transition plan because the nature of man is what it is. You know, if you uh, just pour resources but don't have a relationship, you're not building a relationship, then you, the end result can, can be not what you're trying to produce. Helping building a building, page 50 again, helping build a building can be helpful if it is a fruit of an indigenous vision and not the fruit of the building, they will come missional desire. Uh, meaning, hey, I, I love partnering with indigenous works. I love partnering with uh, a church and saying, hey, here's what our desire is. Here's what we're doing to get there. Can you help us get there? That's a different ballgame than me coming in here and saying, here's what you should be doing. Let me help you. Here's a model. And then convince them that this is the right model. That thinking, backward thinking, means you're going to be sitting there your whole life trying to convince people that this is, this is the right way of doing things. And uh, you'll find yourself probably more frustrated than, than not. So last thought here on, on this section here. Missional works need to keep in mind that God does not lack the resources to fulfill his purposes. Christianity is not a rich man's religion. The Lord doesn't lack. And we Listen, we were in many situations in ministry where we were like, wow, if we could just have a little bit of money. You know, wow, if we, could, if we just had a building. And we could grow this thing. I mean, we're tight here in this little living room and this basement and this. If we just had money, if we just had a building, just be careful to not think that, oh, God is like, you know, this is America's God's storehouse. You know, and, uh, and the rest of the world is just waiting for America to release the valve of the resources. God is not, thankfully, uh, an American God. He's got his he's, – he's a – God does not lack resources to accomplish and fulfill his purposes. And that's, that's always been my conviction in ministry. I've never sat around, I've never sat around in ministry thinking, well, if only I had, if only I had these resources, we could get this done. Oh, so God's waiting? Like, so God is waiting? Man, I'm, my credit line has expired. I mean, I've reached my credit limit now. I've got to wait on the church to, I'm gonna, I need another missions conference to rally up. As if God is waiting on anything. Come on, I can't, how can we, how can we think missions that way? I can't. I've always, I always strongly believe if we didn't have something, God didn't desire us for us to have it at that point. And maybe the church needed to be faithful. Maybe these things had to happen. But I could not think of a God who just sitting there frustrated that the next phase of ministry couldn't happen unless the mighty dollar came and fell. I just can't 
I couldn't think that way. As you walk into this, and, and the financial piece is key because the, the financial piece and how that is controlled and run determines how the, the ability of a church to be uh, self-supporting, provide for their own spiritual well-being as well as their own financial well-being. Then the two other areas, quickly here, and then we'll get to introducing that, the last chapter. From disciples to self-governing, just a short section here on uh, – it's a short step between the church being self-supporting, self-governing on its way to being fully indigenous. Governing implies structure and organization, which means a church that takes ownership, that takes responsibility. I've heard this said, I've heard this said in many, many cultures. Well, they just don't have natural leaders. I'm not sure what that means exactly. You know, you know, I know Americans are – we have a certain leadership culture. I get that. But I've heard it said about many ministries on the mission field. Well, we just don't have natural leaders here. What that means is that I've got a leader in the place for one. And I understand, hey, there, there are deficiencies. There are, you know, some – we like things done in timely fashion. You know, that's why you have the little clock up there on the screen, you know, that little countdown. We like, bam, 6 o'clock, we're starting. 5 o'clock, we're starting. That's, that's American culture. I mean, uh, Mark would laugh, you know, if a Haitian culture had a clock. <laughs> it wouldn't mean anything. You know, it's like, what's the clock there for? Who knows, you know. That's, uh, that, different cultures, that's not good or bad, but that's just something you have to kind of contend with. So we are, we are super – Structure that way and efficient that way, but from disciples to being able to govern and take their, their I've, I've got to trust the Lord that he's going to work in the hearts of those people Amen. to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the funnel for the, for the Spirit of God to convict them of what they need. I have to be convinced that God is well able and well capable to, to do that. I put down on the last part of the section here, you see a little paragraph here right at the end of number three. Missionary efforts should slowly remove the scaffolding used to establish a structure in favor of indigenous churches. I wish I could tell you, I've just seen this model repeated over and over and over and over and over and over. Two, two Bible schools in France that we were involved in. One family was involved in, I knew it well, knew the family well, I've known them since, I've been, since my childhood. Same strong leader. Strong leader that show you the type of leadership he is. You know, he asked me to go teach at his school once, and I was like, "Well, I was teaching at this other school, and the rule is I could teach at his school if I quit teaching over here." So, well, I'm not going to do that. They weren't conservative enough for him, I'm sure. So that was kind of one of those things. And uh, just describing, basically, he's so controlled everything. If you taught in that school, he graded all the papers. So I was trying, you know, and you couldn't use any of the material in the church without his permission. I mean, that shows you kind of the, the mindset. Well, after 35 years, maybe 30 years, 30 years, the school closed last year. I've known good friends in that school. I knew in their heyday they may have had 20 students, you know, going through. Last couple of years, nobody. And, of course, now his health declined, so he's back in the States. And my brother was helping them uh, get their building ready. They were leasing all these years. They never bought the building but leased it. Big, huge building. This other school that I was teaching at transitioned to French leadership. Whenever I went to teach over there, I took uh, um, responsible of certain classes, and he said, hey, just submit your classes, but you're free to teach however you want to teach this. And as you know, he, of course, we knew our, our convictions were. Now that school is over to French leadership, and it's still running. One couldn't let go 
And by doing that, ultimately, it will fail. It will not, it will not achieve the desired um, purpose of being self-governing. This is our ministry, and we'll uh, take ownership of it. And the other one goes, why? Because they, they gave them over to it, and the building was given over to them. So now they have their own building that was financed by the missionary work, but turned over to the French ministry without any strings attached and, and is able to continue in that way. The last one, number four, self-extending, meaning the ability to, to grow the beauty of a church, of a, of a missionary church. And here's one of the great challenges of a, of a young missionary church is that it's, um, it, also is, it often sees itself as frail and weak. And when you see yourself as frail and weak, the first thing you want to do is what is to care for your own needs. But boy, the sign of maturity of a work is when, like Paul described, they start sending messengers from that church to help support other churches and to be a messenger of that work. So self-extending is the ability to um, a young church to not just survive, right, uh, but to grow. And one of the clear, top page 51, one of the clear indicators that a work will sustain uh, is its ability to be self-extending, which means now they're, they're evangelizing, they're growing, the gospel being shared, people being discipled, and they're able to, to grow in, in that capacity. So I give a few uh, attributes of a church that, that looks like that and where you're trying to, to bring a work. So um, just a few, a few things that you, as we look at this, and we'll walk into our last chapter here. Um, the beauty of going to work of the Lord is trusting, one, that the Lord knows what he's doing, Trusting him that the biblical principles that I'm we're gonna I'm gonna be grounded on are gonna be true in every circumstances. When my emotions make me waver, when my desire to to to, to intervene, when my all these things that, that come into play is trusting the Lord. And and there's I'm sure I'm sure Brian could testify to this. When he comes now, you've got brothers in Christ that you're serving with. Right? They're not just your pupils, they're like men you're now come alongside you. And you're you're working together for for to grow the church. That that is a beautiful place to be and to see that in, in a work. So let me let me open up chapter four. We're just going to give a few principles as we enter here and take just three or four minutes and give you an idea of what we're looking at here in this last in this last section. I, I had a desire to write a, a section on um, first of all. What does it mean? What's, what's strategic missions? We use that term even in the church. You'll see that's one of the banners we have in, in the church, right? Strategic mission. What does it mean, strategic missions? Well, how do you invest? Where do you go? How do you do it? All the things are part of strategic missions. And here's a few considerations framing that in today's, uh, today's environment to understand what strategic missions is and how I understand that to be. Then talking about uh, 21st century missions, just a little caveat on that. And then... Um, A chapter on God's sovereignty and, and missions and being encouraged by that. So let me look just briefly at this introduction part for the next two, three minutes, since we have just two, three minutes here just to give that as an introduction. So I'll put down that the final, this final section will focus on establishing healthy parameters for a church mission commitment. So healthy, and what does healthy mean? I mean, you have to break down, you know, what, is it, what, does, what does something that's healthy mean? I put down here, healthy will be measured by that which aligns itself with the intended role of the church and missions. Healthy missions, 
healthy mission program has to be defined by that which aligns itself with the biblical model of church and, and missions, not just, uh, I'm not going to say superficial, but outward appearances of what's healthy, because what's outward appearance on one hand for a season can seem like it's healthy, and five years later you find out that there were some underlying problems and never grew. So healthy as defined as, as it aligns itself with the intended role of the church and missions. Put down healthy in that experiential missiology, pragmatism, individualism are put aside in favor of guidelines which help the church fulfill its biblical obligations towards the body, toward individual missionaries, and toward paramissional organizations. Uh, meaning, what I want to look at here in this chapter 1 is the uh, healthy church, what's a healthy missionary look like, and what's a healthy relationship with a paramissional organization? How do you work with them in a, in a healthy way to for, together advance the purpose of missions in, in, in the church? So I look at those, those three areas. So... don't really want to kick in that last segment six o'clock i don't don't really want to attack let me see 52 53 you find that in, in, a, in a situation of a mission uh, uh, opportunity and uh, that these people have their own culture and their way of solving problems that we wouldn't even think about. Uh, uh, I, I witnessed in, in Africa that um, they needed protein for the people. Well, they dig a big hole and, and have water there in the hole. And then they bring in and put some baby fish in there. And and then they uh, put a little stuff in there to feed them. And if it's too hot in the African uh, sun, well, then we'll just put some straw, grass, anything on top of the water, and it floats, and, and it protects the fish and breeze below. And then there's protein there, tr tremendously big protein, <laughs> and, and it's for the people. Yeah, I saw these big cages with about 50 or 60 guinea pigs, and I'm thinking, well, those are not pets, are they? And so they, like, they keep them going, and it's like these are little meals to go. You know, they stay fresh, and they take a couple of guinea pigs on the road, and there they go. I didn't travel in the same direction. I went in a different direction, but at the Just time. Because they are a different <laughs> culture, it doesn't mean that they're dumb. Uh, you have to have probably a stomach like like Brian's, to be able to, 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 to experience some of the things that you have to experience and, and, and working with people. And Let me just get this thought process thinking, and then we'll, we'll pick back up on this next week. I put on page 52, healthy missions understand that God is sovereign in missions. There's a, there's a warped approach to missions that teaches that basically – we're coming to rescue God and his purposes. We're not rescuing God. I put down the church is not on a mission to rescue a God in trouble, a God unable to fulfill his purposes. He rescued us, and he invites us to participate in the victorious work of Christ. This, this really warps our thinking about missions when we think that what God is is somehow waiting on the sidelines for people to volunteer and go. And... If there's unreached people, it's because we haven't been answering faithfully the call. 
when you start thinking that way, your motivation for ministry shifts. Instead of being, instead of faithfulness and, and, and glorifying the Lord, you're, you're, you're on a rescue mission that God doesn't need to be, God doesn't need to be rescued. And I think in missions, there's, there's some frustration. And the reason why you see that in missions is because they want to, they want to motivate. Look at page 53, and I'll, I'll come back on this next week. I'll leave this with this. Here, people want to motivate people to missions. And they feel like the appropriate way to motivate people to missions is by either guilting them into missions or give the impression that God just needs our help. So I put down two quotes, Pearson and Dargon, and they make statements. And I, Dargon, I like his writings, so I'm, not, I'm just showing you how sometimes we try to promote missions. Look at says page 53. He says, Pearson says this, In the plan of God, every believer is a witness. In the wide field of the world, every disciple is needed as a workman. Without him... God cannot do his work, cannot do this work, unless he abandons his plan. Both Christ and the world are waiting for disciples. I read that, I'm thinking, no, God waits on no one. God waits on no one. Missions is not about rescuing God. It's about being obedient to God. It's about being faithful to proclaiming the gospel. It's about going and sacrificing. But it's not rescuing God. Dargon says also, and he says... Sin has mingled with his own antidote and neutralized the healing virtue. Selfishness and greed have invaded the ranks of the saints and hindered the triumph of the cross. I says, no. We cannot hinder the triumph of the cross. We cannot. If I go to the field thinking, boy, every one of my shortcomings is going to somehow, you know, man, God's going to be, oh, man, I, was, I really want to do something great here, but Jeff blew it. Man, is that, that's not how I serve. I just, that's not how I can serve. So I think we do that because in, you see books written that way because they want to motivate the missions. I think it's a poor motivation tool. And I address some of this in, in, in part of this chapter here. So just food for thought as we uh, put this to the side for today because we're going to be coming back here in, in a few weeks on, on this. And uh, I really give the helpful, the helpful chapter here is on that, on strategic missions. And I think I put nine traits of a healthy missionary. And so if you're interested in, in missions, that would be a good one as well for for you to, to underline. So thank you so much for your time. Love being here. And we close up in a word of prayer. Father, it's just a a blessing not only that we, we're recipients of your grace, but then you, you make us in your in your mercy, you make us participant in in carrying the, the gospel to the uttermost. Lord, it's a, it's such a privilege and such a grace and such a responsibility and yes Lord there are times where we will fail many times we will fail in that but Lord I am grateful that we serve a God who is not limited by my shortcomings a God who will triumph and so Lord just thank us for, I just thank you Lord for uh, allowing us to to be here and Lord even here we talked about last week just some even in in this class that would have a desire to serve you overseas, Lord, that you would open those doors providentially, that you make that clear to them, that you make it clear to the church, and together we might just serve you and glorify you and be faithful until your return. We thank you, Lord, for our time together. Bless this evening and remainder of the week. In your name we pray. Amen.